I'm thankful that you guys are here today. Praise the Lord. And I, just for you, those of you that don't, that don't know me, don't know my story, I don't come from a religious background. I come, don't come from a church background. I don't come from ever, ever, ever been in church actually my entire life. At the age of 34 years old, I'd never set foot in a church other than for a wedding or for a funeral. Never sat in a church service. Never had a Bible open before me unless I'd seen one in the drawer of a, of a hotel. So I don't come from a religious background. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a completely secular home. God, 18 years ago, intervened in my life and change things dramatically. And if you'd have told me back then, prior to, say, 19 years ago, that I would be a preacher one day, I'd have been like, you are crazy, not a chance in the world. But God has a way of working out his plans, not our plans, praise God. So uh, I'm coming to you from a, uh, uh, from a life that has been dramatically changed and God has done a work in me and I pray that he'll use us today. Uh, last week in our message we talked about, and we've been, the, our message for the last few weeks has been clothed in righteousness. Uh, we're gonna wrap that message up today, but we moved from the ephod, which was the, uh, and, the, and the stones that the high priest carried upon his shoulders, right? We went from that part, that aspect of what he was wearing. We went from there, we actually worked our way to the breastplate, the breastplate of judgment. They carried the 12 tribes upon the 12 different stones upon the chest. And what that did was it represented the, the, the high priest who would be going before God. What it did was it represented him going and carrying the burdens of the people before God and also the fact that he had to love them. This morning, we'll examine the foundational robe that will go under the elements, which we've already studied, as well as the ceremonial headdress and the coat that will be worn for the, by the priests in their service to God. Uh, what we've already seen is that each garment and each material for each garment has been very specific and having a purpose that it points to something larger than itself. It teaches a biblical truth, and we're going to see the same thing happening this morning in our message, Clothed in Righteousness. So let's pray over this message. Lord, we thank you so much for today, and God, I thank you for the opportunity you've given me, uh, Lord, to... Uh, to be able to preach, God, it's not something that, uh, that I take lightly, God. I just uh, I absolutely feel so blessed and so humbled uh, to be given the ability. Uh, Lord, not in the ability, just the, the opportunity, God, to, to let you use me. And Lord, I pray today that you will eliminate me completely from this equation, God. Take the human element out of this message, Father. I do not want to be heard. I want to hear myself. My heart is ready to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you use the word that you've given, Lord, and I pray that, God, you will direct us and guide us. And, Lord, help us to have ears to hear that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, okay, um, so two weeks ago we studied the ephod, okay? That's the outer protective or decorative robe that the high priest wore. It had the onyx stones upon the shoulders with the 12 tribes written upon them. That was talking about him carrying the people as a whole before God, okay? Then we looked here, the breastplate of judgment last week, and that was more individual. So now we see this individual breakdown where he's carrying them upon his heart. The desire of God was the fact that the priest would do what he did because he loved the people, not because he was just simply called into service, but because he cared for them. So then they're so that aspect of them being located over his heart. So as a refresher, we're going to look at here, verse 28. We're going to go into a little bit more of this garments. We're actually going to finish them today. Verse, chapter 28, verse 31 of Exodus. It says, And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Does anybody remember what the color blue represented? The healing power of God, right? The healing power of God. So we think about that aspect. This entire robe is going to be blue. So this undergarment, which is directly beneath the ephod, right? So the breastplate of judgment, which was woven of red, blue, purple, and gold, along with its mounted stones, that's the outer layer. 
And then we had the ephod, it's made out of the same colors, that's the next layer. And then we have that next part is gonna be the blue robe, right? So what we see here is that the judgment of God represented in the ephod and the breastplate is separated from humanity by the healing power of God. Each layer represents something as we're working our way from the outside of judgment, working our way in, that healing power of God is dividing Aaron from the judgment of God. I don't know about you guys, but see the same healing power, the judging power, that, that healing power of God is exactly what God used in my life. When I talked about 18 years ago, God changed me, man. I'm telling you what, it was God's power to come into my life, someone who was broken, right? Not necessarily like walking around crying all the time. I wasn't that kind of person. Boy, I had a facade. I was going, good, how are you? Good to see you. Hey, man, how are you? But inside, how many of us have some brokenness inside of us? Right, there's a, few, there's a few cracks. Some of us have some big chunks that have been knocked out. We're just like this wobbly bunch of pieces that are all just kind of barely holding ourselves together. And we put this facade on, but maybe sometimes we're talking to somebody who really knows us and we find a, we break down. Or we're sitting by ourselves alone sometime in a dark room and we're laying in bed and we're thinking about, you know what, what's, what's, what's my life all about? And we find ourselves going through all these issues, things that we're struggling with, right? And that's what God saw when he saw me. He saw this broken person who was struggling, who was putting on a facade, but needed him. And that was the things, that healing power of God is what came down and touched my life. It made a dramatic, dramatic change. It was the fact that God withheld the judgment that was deserved for me, Amen. that I deserved. And it was the healing power of God that divided the judgment of God from what I deserved. And it was his willingness to come down and to heal me. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't know about you guys, but man, I am not ashamed. Amen. I, will, I will talk to anybody about what God's done in my life. Because I'm telling you, man, it is a dramatic change. If you can think of who you were before you came to know the Lord, you know what? And it's like, it's not fake, man. It's not pretend. I was a different person, and God intervened and changed me like that because he gave me a heart to realize that it wasn't all about me. The problem is we think life is about us, and it's just not. And the more you think that, the more frustrated you're going to become because God's saying, you know what? It's not about you. If you understand there's something so much bigger, man, it can open your eyes to the beauty of God. He took me from a sin-sick, lost, broken, reprobate and made me a child of the king, not because I deserved it, only because his love overruled my brokenness. He looked beyond my sadness, my brokenness, my sin, and the way that my life was so destroyed. And he looked beyond it and he said, you know what? I can do something with that. That's kind of like somebody who goes to a junkyard and sees an old junk car, right? And they go, man, I can see what that thing's going to be one day. And everybody else is like, what? That rusty old piece of junk? Are you kidding me? You're not going to do anything with that. But you put it in the right hands, what can they do, man? Muddy, they can turn that into a supercar, muscle car, whatever it is. And people see it and they go, whoo, man, that thing's gorgeous. But if you show them the before picture, they're like, oh, really? That's God, man. He looks at an old rusty wreck that has no value to the world. And he goes, you know what I can do with that? I could clean that thing up. Boy, I could make that thing into a supercar. Praise God. Not that I'm a supercar by any stretch of imagination, but God is doing a work. But it's the healing power of God, man. Verse 32. And there shall be a hole in the top of it. 
In the midst thereof, it shall be a, be a binding of woven work round about the whole of it, as it were the whole of a habergen, that it be not rent. A habergen is kind of like a long sleeveless outfit, almost like, like they make chainmail armor. It has a hole here and has neck here, kind of hangs down long. And the aspect, I have a picture of it, I think actually what I'm going to show. There you go. So the habergen is actually this, this blue thing. This is the robe that we're going to be talking about this. So here we have the ephod. There's the breastplate. Those are the plates upon the shoulders, and this is this under layer that we're going to be talking about right now, this, this robe as we're talking. So this uh, decorative trim, it has a neck hole that's going to be reinforced so that it doesn't tear. It's a sleeveless garment. It's long. This robe, because of its color, right, and the details of it, is picturing the ultimate manifestation of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is pointing to that healing power of God. In the scriptures, guys, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, again and again and again, it's always pointing to the same thing. It's always pointing to to the Lord. We look at the Old Testament and we go, gosh, you know what? There's so many things I don't understand. If you could see it with God's eyes, the beautiful thing is when the Holy Spirit starts to allow you to see into the, whole, into the Old Testament, you start to see pictures in that Old Testament. Boy, oh boy, all of a sudden you start seeing the picture that are being painted is actually pointing to him. Yes, it talks, you'll see the, the, the coming of Christ, his first coming. Absolutely, you'll see that. You'll see his, his, his resurrection or, the, or his power of, of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection in the Old Testament for sure. But the one thing you'll see overarching all of that is the second coming of the Lord. That is the theme of the Bible, and it works from the very beginning all the way to the end. God is pointing us to that day, that day, that day. Consider there's six, the six days of creation, right? The seventh day was that day of rest. And the Bible teaches us that a thousand years is a day, and a, day, a, a, to a, a thousand years is a day to the Lord, and a, thou, and a day is a thousand years to the Lord. Whatever, you know what I'm saying. The translation is, I can't think of how to say it. <laughs> you know where I'm going. But what happens is we look at that seven days and God's pointing to a 6,000-year time period or the 7,000th year. And that 7,000th year, guess what it's called? The millennial reign. That's the time of rest, man. It's always pointing. And in the millennial reign, why is that important? Because that's the second coming of the Lord, man. So even in the six days of creation, God's pointing in that seventh day and the Sabbath day saying, look, that's the day. I'm celebrating the day of my son. It's all about the day that he will receive the glory that he deserves. Verse 33 says this. And beneath upon the hem of it, thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof and the bells of gold between them round about. So as we get further details, we go to Exodus 39, 25. This is actually when it's been made. They have a little bit more information. It says, and they made bells of pure gold. So these are physical bells. And put the bells between the pomegranates upon the hem of the robe round about, the, round, about, round about between the pomegranates. So the hem of the garment would have these decorative pomegranates. They're going to be woven and they're going to be dangling off of the very ends. And then in between each one of those little pomegranates that's hanging down, there'll be a bell hanging along the bottom edge of this garment. Verse 34 says, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about. So we look back at that picture real quick. We'll see them along this bottom edge here, right? So these little bells and these little pomegranates are dangling down there. And what's kind of cool, as you look at this, is you start to see a little bit more about what the pomegranates represent and kind of what they are. And based on my study, it appears that the pomegranates actually mean they represent fruitfulness or blessings, okay? And then if you look at the bell, the bells represent uh, profession or preaching, right? They, they put out a sound. So we think about the hymn, what this hymn is all about and why this hymn is important. Philippians 1.27 says this, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear 
of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we think about those bills professing, right? Professing the good news of God. He's saying, look, that if you're out there, your conversation of your life, the conversation means the way you live, the way you speak, just the person that you are, your life then speaks to other people. And the whole thing we have to ask ourselves is are our, are our lives impacting other people's lives through the fruitfulness that they display? Are our lives, are they professing the good news, right? Are our lives professing the good news to the lost world that's around us? Because you know what? There were people in my life that were Christians that never shared the gospel with me. I was lost, and it was obvious that I was lost. You could spend five minutes with me. Every other word I used had an F or an uh, whatever. They were not good words, normally four letters. And that's just the way I talk, man. Those were like adjectives. And I would speak like that, and people were like, hey, hey, hey. And I'm like, what? I didn't even hear it. It was amazing. So what happened was you could see my life and go, you know what? I should say something to this guy. But you know what? For whatever reason, people didn't until one day. Matthew 29, Matthew 9, 20 says this and 22. And behold, a woman, this is interesting because understand there's a hymn here. There's not only the hymn that's in the Bible, but I want to talk about another hymn. This is really cool. Behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him, Jesus, and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about and when he saw her, he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. You see, it was nothing magical about the hem. It had nothing to do with the garment itself. It had to do with the faith. It wasn't the hem. It was the the hem, right? <laughs> it wasn't the hem in the garden. It was the hem that was wearing the garment. Consider that was the, this is the high priest garment. Understand that the fact that these people would understand who a high priest was. These Jews would know about the high priest. They would know the significance of this man and what he was to represent. And they recognized Jesus was this ultimate high priest. So she's thinking, you know what? If I can just touch the hem, that's where the, that's where the bells and the pomegranates would be. There was, a, there was something about those things, man. These Jews were familiar with this. You see, they would be able to hear the, the priest as he would go and perform his duties in the temple. Right? They could be standing outside and they could hear when he was walking somewhere. They could tell where he was. His walk would profess what it was that he was doing. If he was actively doing what he was supposed to be doing, you'd hear the bells. And what we have here is a woman who's saying, you know what? I just need to touch the hymn. And what's really cool about it is the fact that think about it. In order to touch the hymn, what do you have to do? You got to humble yourself, right? That profession, that, that picture, the hymn is the lowest point. Matthew 14, verses 34 through 36 says this, and when they were gone over, and this is after the, the, the disciples have traveled over, they've just gone across the Sea of Galilee, and it says, and they came into the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him, and they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Again, it's nothing to do with the hem but it's the reverence of who it is that they're going to see, man. It's everything to do with him, not the him. Anyway, I know that's confusing, but H-E-M and H-I-M. It's all about the H-I-M, let's just put it that way. All about the him. Notice that there's no one wants to touch his sleeve. They're not touching him on his back. They're not grabbing onto him anywhere else. They're all going to the same place, humbling themselves before God, and in, hum in humility, understanding who he is, man. There they fall before him. They go to that lowest point. And the whole thing is it's only through the clarity of seeing God for who he is that you and I will be humbled. 
God expects us to be humbled. God, if you exalt yourself, God says he'll humble you. But if you'll humble yourself, God will exalt you. And what we find here is, look at this in Isaiah 6, 5. He says, then said I, this is Isaiah. Understand Isaiah's story. Isaiah was a big wig in the, in the kingdom. And he'd really kind of grown up there. And the king that was there before loved him, man. But then that king died. And all of a sudden, the next king didn't think he was anything too special. And Isaiah was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he started reevaluating himself. And what happens is, this man who had a little bit of pride, God gave him an opportunity to see him. And look at this. Then said I, woe is me. He's literally flashed before God. He sees God in person. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am undone. He says, look, I just basically want to turn to blah. I can't even stand. He's like, I'm so humbled by what I see and how great God is and how worthless I am. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, but I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He said, not only am I sinful, but I'm around people that are sinful. And I'm okay with it. It's amazing. We're polluted by the things around us. And God's saying, look, if you see me for who I am, you will be humbled if you see me. The problem is that you and I don't see him. We're so filled looking on the mirror, looking at ourselves, thinking about the world that we don't see God. And if you could see God for who he was, man, he would put you on your face. In the scriptures, every time somebody comes before God, they are on their face. They don't stand boldly and talk to God. No, 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 no. They all do the exact same thing. Not even worthy to look up. There's something there, man. It's a beautiful thing. God wants us to be humbled before him. Pride is what blinds us. Blinds us to seeing God, but I guess what also blinds us to? Seeing our sin. Because we think we're something special. And we're unwilling to look at ourselves because you know what? I start thinking, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. And if you don't think you're prideful, the same example I can give you, if we took a picture of all of us in the room, who'd be the first person you look for? Yourself. We all do. We are prideful by nature. And pride is the thing that will blind you to who God is. It is the one thing that will blind you to your own sin. You will justify the things that you do wrong. You will tell why it's okay and all those reasons because your pride does not want you to be humbled before God to go, you know what? You are a worthless sinner. You are undeserving of God's love, but yet he loves you. And that's the thing. When you find yourself seeing God for who he is, man, it changes your heart. It allows you to see yourself in a new way and you start going, you know what? I'm not as good as I thought I was. I'm not as, as together as I, as I thought I was. You know what? I'm in, I have a need in my heart. And when you have a need, guess what? The beautiful thing is God is there to fill it. Amen. Look at this. Well, look at what happens. Now, remember Thomas? Remember he calls him Doubting Thomas? Well, there was a time when Thomas was arrogantly denying that Jesus was who he says that he was. They told him, hey, man, Jesus was here after he resurrected. And he's like, ah, oh, whatever. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, let's look at what happens whenever... He gets to see it. John 20. It says, Then saith he to Thomas, Jesus, he says, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. He says, Look, I, I'm exactly who I said I was, and this is me. Here are the holes where they crucified me. Here's the, here's the hole in my side where they put the spear in. Why don't you go put your hand in there just to make sure that you believe it, Thomas. And Thomas answered, answered and said, My Lord and my God, humbling moment. Jesus said to the end of Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. See, it's one thing to have to have it proved to you. And some people are like, you know what? I don't believe God exists. I don't believe God's real. He needs to prove himself to me. You know what? That just shows our pride. He needs to prove himself to us. 
Yeah, you, you show yourself to me. You show me because I need you to, God, show and show you. How ridiculous is that? God created us, man. He could wipe us out. He gave us life. You can look around you and see the proof of God's existence. Look at the way your body heals, the way the human body, the way creatures reproduce, the way things work in a perfect balance. The fact that the moon, right, the moon's a certain distance away from the earth, and the moon's also a certain distance away from the sun, and it's not by coincidence the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, but guess what? The timing in space works out that when they happen to line up, guess what? They're exactly the same size. That doesn't happen by accident. All these things were done on purpose, for a purpose. And it's the arrogance of humanity that blinds us to seeing him. God's power to work in us and through our lives is determined upon our level of faith. Now, if we go back in Matthew 14, remember we we talked about they were going over to Gethsemane? They were traveling over the waters? Well, let's just go back onto the water for a minute and let's see what happens there. Matthew 14, we're talking about the, the power of faith. Matthew 14, 28 through 31 says this, and Peter Answered him and said, Lord, if thou be, if, if, it thou, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But, here's where things go wrong. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And look at the word. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said, saith unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He says, did you not see when you were looking right at me and you're focused on me, you're walking like you're walking on dry ground. Did you notice that, Peter? But guess what? As soon as you looked at the wind and the waves and you started getting your eyes off of me, what happened? You started to sink. Do you not realize it's a matter of faith, you silly boy? That's us. It's all a matter of faith. Now let's consider the level of faith that understand this high priest, right? What's the level of the faith that this high priest is? He's going to go in the holy of holies. And guess what? The result of going into the Holy of Holies, if you're not right with God, you die, right? So let's look at the level of faith these guys would be going. There is no higher stakes than having your life on the line. And it shall be upon Aaron, right? Notice the word upon. It means talking about carrying a weight. It shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before the, before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. <laughs> so if the bell stop, there's a problem. Aaron just kicked the bucket, right? It's time to go move the body. But as long as we hear the bells, that means that Aaron's still alive, right? Aaron's testimony, Aaron's sound will not only reflect what he's, that he's serving God, but also whether he is doing it faithfully, full of faith. But guess what? Also, his silence, his silence will speak loudly in the fact that he has not been diligent in doing his job that people would hear him and it would speak of his duty and his failure would broadcast his failure in his silence. Does our service to the Lord, our comings and our goings, do they ring of faithfulness in the ears of the lost world? Do people look at our lives and do they see something different? Do they see our faithfulness? Do they see the fact that we stand for the Lord even when times are tough? Because I'm telling you, it's hard sometimes to be faithful when you find yourself shaken. Do we all deal with doubt sometimes? Absolutely. There are faithful people in here. I can tell you, there was a day or there have been days in their life when they thought, is God even there? Am I alone? Is there anyone there? Because you know what the devil does? He isolates us. 
He isolates us and he lies to us. The Bible says he's a liar and the father of it. And when you feel alone, if you're a child of God, I want you to realize, in fact, either you've got two things going on. You've either got pride that is blinding your eyes and plugging your ears to see God, or the devil's lying to you and you're believing a lie. Let me trust you. God says he will never, never leave us, never forsake us. He is not going to walk away from you. There'll never be a point in time when he's going to go, I'm done. I tried, but I just can't do anything with you. You're worthless. No. The good news is God sees you for who you can become, not for who you are in the moment, right? So same, same thing, look into that rusty car in the park and then in the, in the, in the, in the junkyard. You, that, the man that's going to restore that car sees it already finished when he looks at it. I can know what that thing's going to look like. I tell you, the color it's going to be, what kind of engine it's going to have, the wheels it's going to have, everything, I can already see it, right, Chris? You see that old junk car, man, you know what it's going to look like. And God looks at us and he goes, you know what? I know what they're going to look like. Amen. Boy, they're going to have a coat of paint. It's going to be so beautiful. The seat's inside all Corinthian leather. Remember that? Anybody else? <laughs> Ricardo Montalban, Corinthian leather. No, anyway, it doesn't matter. You got to be old in order to know that commercial. But the point is this, he can see what we can become. And that's the thing about God. He sees who we can become. It's a matter of faith. We consider the faith of this man that's standing there. And we think about this also. Are we known for our silence? Because our works for God, our supposed works for God, are in reality dead because they're not service to God. They're service to self. We come to church. We play the game. We act the part. We carry our Bible. Hey, brother, I'll pray for you. But we walk away from them, and we don't even bow our head for a moment to bear their burden. Am I guilty of that? Yes. But you know what? I work on it every time. So if you, if you ask me to pray for you, I, what I'll try to do, I'll pray right then. Guys, send me a note. One of my, my pastor friends this morning sent me a note. He said, hey, man, pray for me. Man, I'm getting ready to preach. I said, you got it, man, right now. We have to be faithful. Because our flesh does not want to be faithful. Our flesh is lazy. It just wants what it wants. And it always wants to be fed. It always wants to be satisfied. It always wants to be entertained. And our flesh needs to be denied so that we can do the things that God wants us to. And sometimes we've got to be so diligent because guess what? The works that we do, we believe we're being so religious, but in reality, they're all dead because they're not for God. I spent years of my life serving God, working my tail off, showing up early and staying late, man, and doing all that I could in reality, serving myself, believing that I was creating an image of righteousness. But God has an image that he wants to create. We've got to be one to say, look, God, not my will, but thine be done. Verse 36, and thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and grave upon it like the engraving of a signet, and it shall say, Holiness to the Lord. So this small plate of gold, right? Remember, gold represents righteousness, holiness. It's going to be an engraved moniker. It's going to say holiness to the Lord. Thus, this is symbolizing the high priest was to be pure as he was reflecting the servant, as reflected as a servant of God, but also the fact that his duty was to the Lord above all else. The high priest was sanctified to meet with God in holiness. You and I are supposed to meet God in holiness. Guess what? If we're not meeting with God, Guess what? That's like an indicator light on your dashboard flashing. Ding, ding, ding. You need to change your oil, something. Well, if you're not meeting with God, there's an issue. And the issue is, ding, ding, ding. You're not holy. We all struggle with it. God doesn't create us for happiness. He creates us for holiness. And the cool thing about holiness is the byproduct of holiness is happiness. 
boy, oh boy, you get this fulfillment like you've never had before. There are some of us that served self for so many years, man. We did what we wanted. We got what we wanted. We fulfilled ourselves, fulfilled ourselves, fulfilled ourselves over and over and over and over and over again. At the end of all that time, we find ourselves frustrated and irritated. Why am I even here? What's the purpose of life? I'm going to go study every religion in the world because you know what? It's got to be something out there because you know what? I'm just not satisfied. I'm just not happy. I, 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 I. And God goes, you know what? And you realize it's not about you. <laughs> and you realize it's about me and that I created you for a greater purpose and I'm going to give you a peace in your heart. Boy, when you do that, oh, it's all of a sudden going to make sense. All the things you didn't understand before all of a sudden start to make sense. And what's cool, if you're walking with God, the beautiful thing about it is the fact that, you know, all the questions that normally people have, all the frustrations and strife, they go away. The worries, man, the worries of feeling like you carry the weight of the world. If you've ever been there, when you feel like you have all the weight of the world on your shoulders, the beautiful thing is God says, cast your care upon me for I care for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. He says, look, I'll carry, I'll carry the weight for you. I'll help you through all these issues. You need not stress over them. But that's not always what we do. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 18 says this, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Listen to that right there. I will receive you, God says. I will have a relationship with you. This is the relationship he's talking about, verse 18, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. He's saying not that he just wants to receive us, like, yeah, okay, I'll listen to your issues. He says, no, 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 I want to treat you like my child. I will be a father to you, and I will love you, and I will care for you, and I will embrace you, and I will uplift you. God wants to meet with us in a close, intimate way as a father with a child. But in order for this to happen, guess what? Those issues in our life, those sinful things of the world, they've got to be removed. They've got to be removed because it's that issue. And guess what pride is the root of? It's the root of all sin. All sin is rooted in pride. So we've got to address that issue that we struggle with. And what we've already seen is the goal is obviously to be clean. But what if we've already blown it? What if we're already polluted? What if our life is filled with all the depravity of the world? What if I've got memories of things that I've done? What if I've got issues and pains and guilt of people I've hurt? What if I think about things in my life right now that I know are not of God and they're a part of my life and I've accepted them? What do I do? The good news is God already sees them. You may think they're hidden, but they're like, ding, ding, ding. God sees them, boom, 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 boom. And he has a plan. He's got a plan, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Because see, 16, 2 Corinthians 16, 17, 18, that's the back of that verse. The very beginning of the next verse, the next chapter, seven, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, having therefore these promises, the ones we just read, that he wants to receive us, that he wants to have us as sons and daughters, he says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Cleanse ourselves, right? The whole thing is if we don't fear God like Aaron does, Aaron fears for his life. He knows if I don't go in there before God with the right heart, I'm gonna drop dead. It's that fear that motivates him. It cleanses, to cleanse himself, right? And if we're not clean, guess what? The Father will not receive us. His desire is to receive us. He wants that relationship. It's not a matter of whether or not he wants it. He wants it. I promise you, when Jesus died on the cross, for God so loved the world, he died for the whole planet. Every single solitary person on the earth, no matter who you are, he had you in mind and he loves you intensely, incredibly. 
And we could curse his name and he still loves us. Because let me tell you, when I use those four letter words, many times I use GD all the time, man. I use God's name in vain all the time. I should have been struck dead by a lightning bolt. But God was like, you know what? One day, you knucklehead, you'll understand. One day, one day. But we have to confess our sins. We have to repent of our sins. First John 1 says this, 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Boy, isn't that the truth? We deceive ourselves. We'll tell us, oh, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm no worse than anybody else. Come on. I mean, geez, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. That's the very thing I said the night that I got saved. It's like, you know what? If you died today, would you go to heaven? I was like, well, you know what? I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not, I'm not as bad as some people. But how many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Just one time. Guess how many times you have to sin to be a sinner? Just one time. Did I have a few sins in my life? Goodness gracious, I could have filled up a phone book with all the things that I had done wrong. So what happened was God says, look, hey, don't deceive yourself. And he says, and notice this next part, it says, if we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, if we confess our sins, look at this, this means be honest before God, honest for ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice that it's not God's duty to do it. God calls us to confession, but then it's up to us. We're to clean ourselves, right? It's not our job as a parent when we correct our children. It's not our job to go to them and force them to say that they're sorry. It's the, it's the duty of that child to come back and say, you know what? I'm sorry. Because you, you know, you get that. Is there any satisfying when you go, say you're sorry? Sorry. As a parent, <laughs> that just makes you more mad. You're like, you better say you're sorry, right? We want them to feel it, man. We want it to be real. But when you say, you, you know what? You come to me when you realize what you've done wrong. 20 minutes later, <laughs> Mama, <laughs> I'm real sorry. Right? And you're like, oh, come here, baby. Okay, let's have some ice cream, sugar bear. Right? Isn't that what happens? Man, we want to, if it's real, it's real, man. And guess what? Forgiven. That's the same thing with us and God. When it's real, it's done. Praise God. Holiness and righteousness are attainable to anyone on this earth. Because guess what? The healing power of God is extended to every person on earth. Verse 37. Thou shalt put it on a blue lace. Check out the color. That it may be upon the mitre. We're talking about that golden uh, moniker that says uh, holiness of the Lord. Now when it talks about a mitre, it's actually talking about a turban. It says upon the forefront of the mitre, it shall be. I have a picture that we'll look at real quick. So here's the turban. Here's the blue lace that's going to hold it. It's attached to that golden plate, which is going to be right on the forehead of the priest. We see again that the holiness of God, the pure gold plate, will be connected to man through the healing power of God, the blue lace. See, the connection to God always is through him, and it's never through us. You cannot create holiness. Amen. No one can. All we can do is borrow it from God. He is holy. We are unholy. Verse 38, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their loyal holy gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So what we find here is that Aaron, notice this part back here, it says, bear the iniquity of the holy things. The holiness, Aaron is symbolized by this turban, right? 
the tainted things of the world, because they're going to bring him gifts, but guess what? They're not perfect holy gifts because they're coming from earth. There's issues with them. They're not perfect. But what it does is God actually has given him as his role as a high priest to bear the sins, the iniquity of the issues that are being brought to God. Bear, Aaron can bear them in himself, making them acceptable unto God. Again, Aaron is a picture of the sin bearer. Verse 39, and thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen, and thou shalt make the miter of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. So we understand that the fine linen is going to be a robe that he's going to wear underneath there. It's called a coat, and this coat would be the, the, the white robe that he would wear underneath here. And we're going to say that's going to be an embroidered piece. But those are white, representing the righteousness of God. Every part of Aaron's garment would be linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. We notice here that this garment, one of the things we know about the, 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 the high priest's robe is it would be a seamless <coughs> garment. It would be a seamless garment. It would have, and there's a significance to that seamlessness and the fact that that robe was made very specifically and made by an artisan that was very, very particular. For John 19, verses 23 and 24 says this. Then said the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier to, apart and also his coat, right? His undergarment, this robe. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it. We don't want to tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. So we're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus goes to the cross. In Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, that very phrase is said. They said, look, they're not going to, they're going to part the raiment and they're gonna cast lots, and that's exactly what they did at the foot of the cross on this priestly robe. The high priest's coat worn by our Lord Jesus Christ was a unique garment and quickly recognized as such. Every part of Aaron's garments will be linked to the Lord. Aaron's coat and turban were to be made of fine linen, like the interior of the tabernacle and the outer court, which guess what they all represent? Righteousness. The priest should be synonymous with the temple. What his, what his clothing is made of is going to match exactly what the temple is made of. This coat was to be embroidered with the turban, was to be remained plain. The girdle, the sash, was made of red, blue, purple, and gold woven fabrics. Right? It's the look and the description of these materials right here. They're, this man, the, 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 the priest, any one of them, they're supposed to be a walking, talking symbol or representation of the dwelling place of God. That is the point of why they're there. They're to serve God, but they're supposed to be a symbol to the people. And as they walk amongst the people, they'll hear them, they'll see him. That high priest is a picture of Christ. And for Aaron's son, thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets. Thou shalt make for them for glory and for beauty. So the instructions for the other priests, guess what? It's not as specific, but it's basically saying, look, these guys is a representation of holiness. They, don't have the, they won't have the breastplate. They won't have the epaulets. They won't have the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the turban with the gold, but they'll have a traditional standard turban. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron, thy brother, and his sons with him, and shalt anoint them and consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. These men, they're going to be ceremonial dressed, right? They're going to be set aside. They're going to be prayed over. They're supposed to be set aside because of their hope, because of the way they look. And guess what? Also based upon their holiness. They are consecrated to God. They are to be prayed over and given to the Lord for a priest's service. And remember in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says this, But ye, speaking of Christians, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him, Christ, who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you and I, the very same thing that we see in these priests, they're supposed to stand out, they're supposed to stand sanctified, they're supposed to appear different than the rest of the world, the ceremonial consecration. Guess what? It's exactly what you and I are supposed to do every day. 
when I wake up in the morning. I'm supposed to consecrate myself. I'm supposed to cleanse myself of the things of this world. I'm supposed to set myself apart. I'm supposed to come out into this world. There should be a difference in my life. Am I living sanctified? As priests, how's our commitment going to living sanctified? How's our commitment to, being, to, be, to, to stand and appear godly? Are we sanctified from the world so that we might minister unto God? Or are we just like everybody else? Do we just blend in and you never know the difference? The difference is, man, guess what? If you are walking with God faithfully, there'll be a profession through the bells, man. Your life's gonna reflect it. The comings and goings of your life are gonna reflect it. The attitude, your attitude, your walk is gonna reflect it. Paul's begging us, begging us in Romans 12, verses one and two. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's going, look, I'm begging you. Do it for God. Live for God. Don't live for yourself because you won't be fulfilled. It's going to frustrate you to death. He knows our weakness and our flesh. Verse 2, he says this, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the... Transformed. The Bible's for two things, right? It's information, yes. But most importantly, it's transformation. It should change us. There are people that are Bible scholars, man. They can teach you Bible all day long. They can quote Bible all day long, but their life does not reflect it because it never transformed them. They're filled with knowledge, but no application. They're unkind. They're unloving, deceitful, unbelievable. You meet people like that, and they're supposed to be Christians, and you know what they do? They poison the rest of the world for what people believe a Christian is because they quote all this scripture, but then their life doesn't reflect it. And you know what they do? They're just hypocrites. Play in the game, man. Play in the game. And lost people, people like me, who meet them, guess what we think? It's all just a bunch of crap. It's just a bunch of garbage. You know what? It's not real. Just a bunch of stories in some old book. They, if it was really like it was really real, their life would reflect it. Problem is their life doesn't reflect it. They're just filled with knowledge, but there's been no change. This incredibly important duty of service God has for them, they don't take it lightly. Verse 44, 40, 43. And they shall be upon, be upon Aaron, upon his sons. And when they come in under the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they came near unto the altar or to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die, it shall be a statute forever to him. So this, this duty that they were going to perform, this work of God, this what they were serious, man. They realized the fact that this was, their life was on the line. And you understand what happens. These men, they don't live in what we call the age of grace. You and I now, because we live in the church age, God has given grace to us. Grace means that he loves those that are unlovable, right? He gives a beyond, beyond ridiculous amounts to to give us grace. These men don't live under grace. They fail, they die. God has paid a price for us. He's made a way for us. But the thing is, is it really, when you think about the age of grace, man, it's a blessing, yes. But it's also a curse, when it comes to serving God. Because these men knew if they weren't serious, they died. You and I don't carry that fear because of God's grace. So what does it do? It makes us lazy. It makes us lazy. Romans 6 verses 15 through 19 says this, what then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. God be thanked that we were the servants of sin. This is where we came from. If you were lost and you've been saved, but God be thanked we were, you were the servants of sin, 
but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. You heard the truth and you received it. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of our flesh. He says, because I know the weakness of humanity. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. Yield. Yield is a choice. When I'm driving my car, I don't have to yield. I can cruise on through. Guess what? I don't have to yield my flesh. I don't have to yield my fleshly desires and my lusts. I don't have to. But God's going, look, man, if you want to have the life that God has for you, you must yield these things. You must let them go. You must be allowed to God, let God work through you because it's the flesh that stops us. My flesh is the thing that tells me whenever God, God lays on my heart to speak to someone and I start to reach out and I start to talk to them and all of a sudden I go, they might not want to hear this. They might, he looks like he's in a bad mood. He doesn't look like he's having a good day. Yeah, it's probably better next time I see him. Probably I'm, not, I'm sure I'll run into him at the grocery store some other time. That's my flesh. God called me to do something. And I allowed my flesh to intervene. And guess what? Every time your flesh intervenes, it will take you away from the Lord. Every single time. Yield to the flesh. The Bible says we will reap corruption. You and I are supposed to sow into our spirit. God's called us to something so great. The problem is we miss out on it because we're so busy looking in the mirror. It seems that so many of us don't take our service to the Lord seriously because our lives are not on the line. You know what it reveals? That we think this life's all about us. If you realize that you literally had, God was gonna kill you if you didn't live right. If he was gonna kill you, man, we'd, be, we'd change just like that. But because we know we're not going to be killed in the moment, we go, eh, Tomorrow, tomorrow, we put it off. See, it won't be until we become, till we come to the realization that this life is not all about us and we see God for who he really is. Oh my gosh, you really understand. And if you're here today and you're mocking God, hey, that's okay. Let me tell you this, there will be a day when no one will mock God. There will come a day when you'll take your last breath. Your heart's gonna stop. Your body's going to fall dead on the ground. And your soul, your spirit, it's going to leave your body. And when it does, there's only two places it's going to go. Either to go before the Lord because you had already received him. He's not going to come to you after you're dead because the choice is made here. God's done all the work. But then it comes down to us. Well, I humble myself before the Lord. That night, August 11, 2001, I saw God for who he really was. Not so picture of someone on a cross, not some Santa Claus, whatever thing in Christmas time, not some story that I heard. I finally came to the realization because the Holy Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, you know what? This is real. And I went from sitting back going like, you know what? Hmm, maybe to going, holy moly. This is life or death, Dave. Your life is on the line. And right now you need to make a decision. You choose life or death. You choose because your eternity could be tomorrow. Man, I slid off all that couch. My wife and I, side by side, slid off of that couch onto our knees, man. And I went down a broken, worthless sinner who was in need of a Savior. And I met one who loved me right there in my broken condition. And he didn't judge me. He just said, you know what? 
I love you. I love you. And if you'll receive what I've given you, I will restore you. And I'm going to make you into something beautiful Amen. that you never dreamed possible. On August 10th, 2001, I never dreamed that today this is what I would get to do. But I could not be more thankful. It's not always easy. But man, what a gift. What a gift from Almighty God to see someone who is worthless and unusable as far as they're concerned and say, you know what, I can do something. And guess what? He sees the same thing in every one of us. He looks at us and he says, you know what, man, if you'll just let me use you, let go of all the things of the world that you think are what you want, let me use you. Because when I do, it's going to be amazing. You're going to experience a life that you never even dreamed was possible. And you'll impact other people's lives. And you'll leave a legacy on this earth. Not in your own name. But in the name of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for today, God. I thank you for the message you've given us. Lord, to be clothed in righteousness. Lord, we can only reach that point when we humble ourselves before you and realize that, God, we cannot do it in any way except through you. God, you are so good to us. Lord, you give us time and time and time. I can look back in my life over and over and over again when you stepped in when I should have died and you saved my life miraculously time and again for the purpose that, God, you wanted me to know you. Lord, you are way better to us than we'd ever deserve. And Lord, today as we stand here, or as we sit here, uh, Lord, and as we have received truth from your word and we look into the garments of these priests and God, we see the holiness of God reflected in them. God, we can see also the incredible love that you have for us, that healing power of God symbolized again and again and again. And Lord, you want to bring that healing power into the life of someone today. Lord, you did it for me 2001. Did it for many of us throughout the years. But Lord, there's one here today that wants to receive it. And God, it's not up to you. It's up to them. All the work has been done. Lord, I just pray that you speak to hearts. Lord, help us, Father, to hear from you. Help us, Lord, to respond as you do call us. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed. If you're here today, and you say, you know what? I don't have that relationship with God. But you know what? I do have the brokenness. I do have the voids. I do have the pain. I do have those thoughts. I do have those dreams. I do have those fears. And I'm tired of it. I'm ready for the solution. God is reaching out to you with a solution right now. When he was on the cross, pinned there by those nails, it was not the nails that held him in place. It was the love that he had for us that held him there. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you want to receive the gift of God, which is simply nothing more than a choice that you make, the gift has already been prepared. It's been offered to the planet. Every single solitary person has an opportunity to receive it, but it's that individual chooses to do so. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It's not a magic prayer. The prayer actually, it actually will do nothing for you. All what God's listening to is our heart. When I called out to God, it wasn't a magic prayer. It wasn't an eloquent prayer. It was nothing more than a heart that was in desperate need of God, and he heard it. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's our heart. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, you can speak this prayer in your own heart. It's nothing 
It doesn't take a preacher, nothing special. Pray this prayer, and if you truly want to receive Christ as your Savior, He will come in and He will save you. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Him. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am so sorry for all that I've done wrong. I'm amazed that you love me, but I believe that you do. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. God, thank you for loving me. At this very second, I'm asking you by faith to come into my heart, to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. God, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.